I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I want you to raise your hand if you remember baby Jessica. A couple, praise God, we got a few of us, okay. Back in 1987, before some of y'all were born, back in 1987, in Midland, Texas, uh, an 18-month-old little girl named Jessica fell down a well. She fell 22 feet down the well and was so tightly lodged that there was no way to lift her out. It was impossible. And so she was in dire straits. And almost immediately, a massive rescue team was assembled. As, as news outlets became aware of the situation, they began to flock to Midland, Texas. National uh, news organizations were coming to cover this event. President Reagan got involved. Uh, everybody, it seems, nationwide, all at once, was praying for baby Jessica. And it was a rescue effort that took 56 hours. Now try to imagine, that's almost, that's almost two and a half days. This little girl was buried underground um, and, and life was hanging in the balance there. 56 hours, but they finally succeeded. And y'all, this is one of the earliest memories of my life. I was five years old. I can remember we were at a high school football game in Cameron, Texas, when the announcer over the loudspeaker announced to the crowd that baby Jessica had been saved. And the entire stadium erupted in applause. It was surreal. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And now if you remember it, then you really remember it. Because in that moment, it felt like the entire nation was in the grip of grief and despair and fear for this little girl. Only then, all at once, to be uh, overwhelmed with joy at her rescue. You can, you can Google it, okay, if you don't remember it. Uh, I think I got all the details right. It was incredible. All this just absolute grief for this girl and her family then turned to rejoicing. And y'all, as we, as we walk through the Gospel of John, um, it seems like it's taken forever for the upper room discourse to come to a uh, conclusion here. I mean, we're we're in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and then we'll see Jesus' prayer in chapter 17. It seems like it would have taken quite a while, but in reality, this is all taking place at the Last Supper. Jesus is right on the cusp of his death and then his resurrection. We're almost there. And it's something maybe it's easy for us to take for granted, that we have the whole story right here before us. We can make reference to the whole story because we're now looking back on it and we have the finished word of God in our hands. But it wasn't this way for the disciples. In the midst of John chapter 16, where we are today, the disciples are utterly confused. They don't understand why Jesus has to go away. And they're really on the brink of despair because they don't know what they're going to do when he does. When he leaves, the fallout from that is going to be catastrophic to them. And so these men are in, they're in dire straits here in the upper room, which is why Jesus very patiently and tenderly takes his final moments on earth to walk with them, to comfort them, to strengthen them, to speak with them. That's what he's doing here. Jesus knows what he's about to face, but he also knows what they're about to face. And while his trial will be much greater than theirs, they are going to go through a terrible valley here. And so Jesus refuses to just walk away. He leaves his disciples here with a great promise. And it's not just for them, it's for us too. Jesus is going to tell them, we'll see it in the scripture, 
You will grieve, yes. But your grief will be turned into joy. And y'all, that's a promise for us right where we sit as those who know the Lord. So look with me here. We're going to look at a lot of scripture, really the second half of the chapter, all together here. This is John 16, beginning in verse 16. We're going to look at about maybe seven verses here all at once to get a, a, a bigger picture sense of all that Jesus is saying. John 16, verse 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, right here, Jesus is speaking of his death and his burial and resurrection. In a little while, you will no longer see me because he's going to be crucified and buried. And then again, a little while, and you will see me. On the third day, Jesus will rise again and will reveal himself in glory to his disciples. Now, that seems very simple, very obvious when I say it like that. But again, remember, we have the whole story already. We've got the complete story, whereas the disciples at this point did not. They're mystified. What in the world does Jesus mean? We won't see him, and then we'll see him again. And so Jesus is, is, again, very patiently, very lovingly, walking his disciples into this truth. And so one of the ways that he explains this to them, we saw it just a minute ago in verse 20. Revisit that verse with me, verse 20. I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Okay. Now let's take those, those ideas in turn here because Jesus is giving two very seemingly opposite emotions, right? When the disciples, this is coming now, when the disciples see Jesus arrested, unjustly convicted, mocked and beaten and spit on, crucified and buried, it's going to feel like the end of the world. To anyone, any faithful person who had followed Jesus in his earthly ministry, now to watch those events unfold, how could anything worse happen than what they were watching as Jesus bled and died? How could it be? How, how could anything in the, in the history of the world be any worse than what happened that day at Golgotha? But of course, the world, Jesus says, will rejoice at the cross. This is, and this is so interesting. We saw this in the last chapter, chapter 15. Jesus says, the world has hated me, 
And so to those who reject Jesus, his death is a cause for celebration rather than grief. They finally overcame him. They finally conquered him. In, in the death of Jesus, the world, that is the, the, the darkness that rejects him, that is in the heart of men and women, the world will celebrate because that proves that he was wrong. The son of God. No, he was a pretender. He was all talk. And his death will prove that and therefore the world will rejoice. We finally got rid of this nuisance. Well, that's what the disciples are about to enter into. Their grief surrounded by the joy by looking at the same event, right? It destroys us, but the world rejoices. And so, y'all, it's, I think it's helpful for us. We'll see it in the coming weeks as we walk through the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. The depth of this darkness that's about to come upon the disciples. They think they're grieving now in the upper room. They think things are bad now, but they're going to get so much worse. The man, Jesus Christ, in whom these disciples had placed all their hopes, they put all their eggs in his basket, he's going to be ruthlessly tortured and killed right before their eyes. The enemies of Jesus will will have triumphed in that case, at least apparently, and all of the ministry and the promises of Jesus will seem like they have come to nothing. Absolute failure. We hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel the disciples said after he died in Luke 24. And so when Jesus tells his followers, you will grieve, I mean, that's really an understatement. You will weep, you will lament, you will grieve. The valley you're about to enter into is going to be as dark as you can imagine. But, but Jesus says, your grief will be turned into joy. When the disciples see the crucified Savior risen from the grave, they will, they will experience a joy beyond their categories, right? They're about to walk through grief beyond their imagination, but the joy will overwhelm it, and there will be no comparison. You know, we read this a moment ago when Jesus illustrates this kind of, this, this tension between grief and pain and, and rejoicing. He gives an illustration that most of us Uh, can at least relate to vicariously, if not personally. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, some of y'all moms might be saying, I remember, okay? She no longer remembers the anguish. No, I remember quite well. Men, we don't get to comment on this, okay? Um, But here's the point. It's not that you actually forget, as if the pain wasn't really that painful. No, Jesus is saying the excruciating pain of childbirth gives way to the overwhelming joy of the child, right? There's a joy that overwhelms the pain. And these next few days, Jesus says to his disciples, they're going to be excruciating beyond belief, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And notice this, Jesus makes a promise and no one will take your joy away from you. Now friends, if your hope and your trust 
is in a risen Savior, then no one and no thing can take your joy away from you. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the final word. There is no power of darkness that can overcome or comprehend his light. There is no circumstance or personal inward feeling that can overwhelm the reality of what the resurrection says to us. Y'all, a risen Jesus means that all of God's purposes and all of God's promises are certain. There's nothing that is now left in doubt. There are no more gaps left to be filled. Everything God has purposed to do, everything God has promised to us, is yes, it is certain in Jesus Christ. All of God's grace is now ours forever. The resurrection is the conquering of sin and death and the grave, so that there is now nothing that stands in between you and the Father. His grace is yours and you are His. And y'all, this is really what the rest of the chapter is about. Okay, So I'm going to let Jesus, as we always should, Jesus is going to spell this out for us as to what this, this new joy, this everlasting joy, is going to consist of. So this is verse 23. Again, we're going to look at a larger paragraph here all at once. Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. So Jesus says, and this is a promise, the fullness of your joy is coming. It's coming. And we saw it already because we see in the resurrection, their grief will be turned to joy. But there's a fullness of joy, and Jesus actually expands the focus of this here. It's not just the joy of knowing that Jesus is alive now rather than dead. It's the joy that comes in how we now relate to God the Father. It's the joy of relationship that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has granted to us. You see that in verse 23 when Jesus says, Ask the Father for anything in my name, and he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. And then again in verse 26, You will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Now, we actually, I, I forget the date, but not, not all that long ago, we walked through what it means to pray in Jesus' name he gave us an extended commentary himself on that previously. You can go back and find it on our website. I'm just going to, I'll condense that down to about 45 seconds here. When, when we say we're praying or asking in Jesus' name, number one, this is not a verbal formula whereby we get God to do what we want. If I just pray in Jesus' name, that somehow gives me special access or special favor. That's not the point. Two quick things, though, on this. 
when we pray or ask in the name of Jesus, y'all, first and foremost, that's a, that is a declaration on how we come to God in the first place. When we pray to God, we pray in the name of Jesus, which is to say, Father, I'm only coming to you because I'm allowed in by the grace of your Son. We don't come to God on our own merits. We don't come to God uh, and find his acceptance through our own righteousness. We come, uh, we, we sing this uh, old hymn sometimes, uh, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son, right? And give him great glory. Yeah, so something like that. Great things he hath done. You, you know the song. Okay. We come to the Father through Jesus, right? That is to say, on his merits, on his righteousness, which is granted to us as a gift by faith. When we pray in Jesus' name, this is how we come to God in the first place. It's because of Christ. That's how we're granted this access. And then secondly, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're really praying for his sake. So when I say, in Jesus' name, amen, that's not, my, that's not my way of kind of using Jesus to get what I really want. As long as I pray in Jesus' name, I can ask for all the things that would make me happy, even if those things don't necessarily glorify God. And I, I, you know, I hope that that's, it's been clear that that's not the point. We're praying for his sake. We're asking in his name for what glorifies him, for the good work that he might do in our lives, for the good fruit that he might produce as we abide in him. We're asking for the things that please God to grant. And so, of course, we can come to Jesus. uh, We come to the Father through Jesus. We can ask for anything, and God delights to hear us. But specifically here, Jesus says, praying in my name is praying for my glory lived out in your life, right? Which is something we ought to be praying for, that we ought to desire, but let's, let's take a step back, okay, to something I said a minute ago. When Jesus says, ask anything in my name, and the Father will give it to you, that's a statement of relationship. It's a statement of relationship. It's not so much the things we're asking for, but it's the person we're approaching to ask from. It's, it's God the Father. Right? This relationship that Jesus has given us through his Death and resurrection. Y'all, what kind of person has the right to approach Almighty God and ask for anything, big or small? I mean, really, if, we, if, I, if I look in the mirror and look, I, just, I know my own heart, and I know how selfish I am, and I know my past, and I think, okay, I'm going to come before God, the God, the creator of the universe, and I'm going to ask him for stuff. What, w- what would give me the right to approach him at all, to make any request of the Father. But y'all, that's the point of this text. Through faith in Jesus, we've been given total access, perfect union with God himself. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And therefore, when God comes to us through his Son, he he does not speak to us as a master to a slave, He does not speak to us as one who is lofty and far away and we are, you know, just scrambling to make do while we're here on earth. No, the Father refers to us as his children. We are beloved. And so when we come to God in prayer, we are not an imposition to him. We're not putting him out. 
We're not taking advantage of some, you know, spiritual loophole. We are coming precisely the way God designed us to come, through Jesus Christ, as beloved children. This is the relationship God has delighted to give us. That's why we can ask anything in his name, Jesus says. You know, back when um, John F. Kennedy was president, the photographers at the White House would fairly frequently would capture photos of uh, President Kennedy. He was on the phone maybe with a foreign leader or meeting with some members of his cabinet. And there on JFK's lap sat little John Jr. Playing, you know, playing with the phone cord or, you know, touching his dad's face, you know, as he was making these incredibly important decisions. Um, or maybe John Jr. was there underneath the desk playing with his trains. And of course, it's very endearing photographs when we look at them now. Um, but but the, the question comes up, right? We're talking about the most important man in the world, uh, the, most, uh, the most powerful leader that there was. Who has access to JFK as he, as he discusses the Cuban Missile Crisis? Who gets to hang out and play with trains under his desk as he makes decisions that are going to change the course of history? His son, his child, the only one who has that kind of access. And y'all, this is what Jesus is communicating to us, that by the grace of of Christ, we are now sons, we are daughters of God. Which is why Jesus is able to say, when you ask of God, when you make requests in my name, I won't go to the Father and make requests on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. And y'all, that's, that's more powerful than I think it sounds, if we really reflect on it. Y'all, Jesus did not die on the cross to make God love you. As if God was really mad, and then Jesus came down and died, so now God's happy. No, Jesus died on the cross because God loves you. God loved the world, and therefore he sent his son. The Father loves you. And think about it even now. Jesus is our intercessor. He's our advocate in heaven. Jesus is not up in heaven twisting the Father's arm, saying, now listen, I know Kyle's a screw-up. I know he did it again. I know he didn't pray like he should. I know he's selfish with his time. I know he's lazy. And on and on and on. But you have to love him, Father, because I died for him. The Father himself loves you. You belong to him by faith. He is yours by faith. God loves you that much. And so when Jesus says you can ask anything, in my name, the Father will hear, the Father will give, the Father loves you. That's the relationship we've now been given. Because Jesus Christ has died and has been raised. Now the disciples are going to chime in at this point, verse 29. And they're going to do what the disciples frequently do. They're going to assume they know more than they really know. Uh, but here, here, here it is, verse 29. The disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
So the disciples think they finally got it figured out. Jesus is finally speaking in a language they can understand. And y'all, to be fair, the disciples, they do have faith in Christ. We can, we can you know, laugh at their ignorance, um, but we'd, I'd have been at least as ignorant, if not more so. The truth is they do have faith in Christ, okay? They're not as astute as they think they are. They're not as courageous or as committed as they think they are, though. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows their hearts. And he knows what awaits them, right? The hour is here, he says. The hour always refers to the time of his death. So the hour is here for you to be scattered and to leave me alone. And that's as heart-wrenching as it sounds. And the Gospels testify to this. And Matthew and Mark, they report of this, that when Judas finally shows up with his posse, everybody carrying swords and clubs, that Jesus' disciples left him and fled. That when push came to shove, when Jesus was in his moment of greatest threat and greatest need, all of the disciples ran. And they saved themselves rather than risk suffering with Jesus. And Jesus knew they would, which is why he tells them here in advance. Um, But even still, you notice the, 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 the encouragement here. Jesus says, I'm not alone. Even though you leave me, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And you know, it's another amazing statement Jesus makes. It's almost, we, we almost kind of take it casually because the whole Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about, I and the Father are one. The Father is with me. I obey the Father. I only please the Father, right? But when he says, though you abandon me, the Father is with me. You know, from before Jesus' ministry is even communicated to us, way back in chapter 1 of John, John gave us an an indication of what was to come. He said that Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own countrymen, the Jews, would not receive him. In fact, they killed him. They rejected him wholesale. Jesus testifies multiple times in this gospel that the world hates him. And so the world at large, Jesus says, hates him and rejects him. And then here, even at the end, Jesus knows that his own friends are going to desert him. His closest disciples are going to run. Now, how would you feel? It might be dangerous to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes here, but how would you feel? I mean, it may may seem at this moment like this whole redemption plan is like it looked a lot better on paper than it is in reality, right? It's one thing for the whole world, it seems, to be against Christ, But surely his disciples are going to stick it out to the end. Surely Peter, especially, you know, he's the one who kept bragging about it. He's going to step in, take one for the team. Not even Peter. Peter will deny him. How would you feel if you were Jesus Christ entering into the greatest suffering imaginable and nobody, it seems, is on your side? But he says, I'm not alone. The Father is with me. It was the Father's good pleasure to send His Son into the darkness. None of this came as a surprise to God. And He was pleased to do it, even knowing all the rejection Jesus would face. It was the Son's delight to empty Himself and become our bondservant, to lower Himself, to serve and love and lay His life down for those who would reject and abandon Him. 
And so even if the whole world is against Jesus, the Father is with me, he says. And so Jesus is going to lay down his life even for those who reject him and for those who abandon him. Y'all, Jesus' commitment to you is not based on your commitment to him. The strength of Jesus' love for you does not depend on your prior love for Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. This is love, John says in 1 John. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' commitment to go to the cross was not dependent on who took his side. The Father is with me, and I will lay down my life, even for those who nail me to that cross. And because Jesus is that great, that absolutely committed to our salvation, therefore Jesus can make promises as outlandish as this. Verse 33, the last verse of this chapter, I want to just encourage you to memorize this verse. You'll do it by the end of the day if you put your... You put your mind to it, and it will bless you for the rest of your life. Verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Y'all, peace and tribulation don't go together. right? Anybody knows that, right? Troubles and trials and difficulties are the absence of peace, the destroyer of peace. And yet Jesus holds these two things together for us, trouble and peace. And he acknowledges reality, and we ought to be very keen on this so that we have no false assumption about what it means to be a Christian. In this world, you have trouble. Make no mistake. And y'all, there's a uniqueness of trial and tribulation, even as being Christian, right? That if we read through chapters 15 and the first part of 16, Jesus says, if you are a Christian, there's a unique tribulation. The world will hate you as it's hated me. And so being a Christian doesn't bring us less trouble. If anything, perhaps it brings us more, or at least trouble of a different kind. And yet Jesus makes this promise, in the midst of your trouble, you may have peace in me. And y'all, that's, that's the operative phrase. That's the most important part. Our peace is found in Christ. Now, you, if you've lived long enough, you've figured this out, although we keep going back to the wrong wells. I know I do. But we don't get peace by running away from difficulty. We don't get peace by suppressing and trying to ignore our problems and just stuffing them down. We certainly don't get peace by building up our bank accounts to try to cushion us from the pain of life. None of that works. We have peace in Jesus because Jesus alone is the God who has come down for us and has given himself to us. The only real, lasting peace that God provides has been granted to us in the sending of his Son. And so when, even as Jesus says this, this isn't just nice spiritual language we slap on to our problems to, to help us to, to feel better. This isn't wishful thinking. Jesus really is our hope and our joy and our peace because he himself has gone through 
the tribulation. He himself has gone through the darkness, through the cross and the grave, and has risen again. And therefore, he is the only one uniquely qualified to say, I can give you peace in me, because I am the one who has overcome. And that's just it's an amazing promise. When Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Well, the, the, the greatest evil the world ever committed, the murder of God's own son, was the very way God overcame evil. The greatest evil the world could do in putting to death Jesus Christ is precisely the way God overcomes evil. All of the darkness poured out on Jesus only serves to bring the light of his salvation flooding in. The world at its worst is a showcase for God at his best. That's what the cross and the resurrection are. And so Jesus has died for our sins and he has been raised in glory. He has overcome. And so now for those who trust in him, we may have peace, we may have courage, we may have an indestructible joy, we may possess all the riches of God's kindness toward us in Christ Jesus because he has overcome sin and death and has been raised again. Now what Jesus told these men, as he, these are his parting words to them essentially, what he told them is exactly what came to pass. They were going to enter into grief uh, beyond their categories. You will grieve, but you will see me again. And your grief will be turned to joy. And no one will take your joy away from you. That is not a promise for them only, but for us. To all who have faith in Christ, there is no grief, no tribulation, no pain, no fear, no despair, no sin that he has not overcome by his grace. So may the joy that the disciples have coming, the joy of knowing a risen Savior, may God make that joy ours as well as we look to Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will um, drive home deep into our hearts this, this precious truth that we will not come to you and find acceptance based on what we offer, based on what we have done, or what we at our best even aspire to do. Lord, we will not come to you that way. But we may come to you freely, setting aside all of, of our good and bad. Because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is our forgiveness. He is our salvation. We may look to him and be, and be so fully accepted and received and loved that, that we'll never know the end of it. We'll never reach the bottom. Father, will you help us to see this this morning? 
that we now, because of Jesus Christ dying and rising, we now have a joy that can't be taken away because the joy is in him. Only if Jesus could could come out of heaven and, and go back into the tomb somehow could our joy be lost. But no, he is alive. And we have peace and we may have courage because our Savior is alive. And we may come to you right now in prayer and ask anything of you. We may ask in Jesus' name for his sake and for his glory, and we may know for certain that you will answer us because you love us. I pray, Father, that you would be so delighted um, to open our hearts to these truths that you'd be so delighted, Father, that that we might just look to you and not to ourselves, that we might seek our peace in Christ and not in our circumstances, and that we might um, walk through the tribulations of this life, Lord, uh, with our chests out, confident, even though the pain might be very severe but we have a risen Savior. We have a joy that no one can take away. And so, Father, where we lack this joy, where we are maybe maybe weak or timid in ourselves, where we are distracted, Lord, or maybe where we're just ridden with guilt over our sin, whatever it may be, Father, I pray that you would remove every barrier as we look to Jesus Christ and receive of his goodness and grace. Lord, that we would draw near to you, Lord, and let nothing entangle us. Let nothing stand in the way. You have removed all barriers because you love us. Lord, let us draw near to you through Jesus Christ, the Son, today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.